Good morning, everybody. Michael the Maven coming to you from the Big Island on Hawaii. And I am here working and volunteering with the Salvation Army in response to the volcano. And I wanted to give you a quick update in terms of what we're doing, what my observations are, as, as well as, you know, things I've learned because I've, I definitely have a different mindset when I'm on disasters. And I'll talk about that a little bit later. So the first update, what are we doing here? The Salvation Army has partnered up with a number of agencies, but we are responsible for the feeding at the shelters. So the volcano is, is spewing in Leilani Estates. It's like on the southeast part of the island and people are being evacuated. People have lost their homes. And I know there's this meme going around where it has two pictures of the big island and on the left side, it says what we think is happening on the Big Island. And it has all this red, which is supposedly lava, all over the island. And on the right side of the meme, it says what is actually happening on the Big Island. And it's a teeny tiny, you know, like 1% of the island that is covered in lava. And I have mixed feelings about that meme. I think in terms of surface area, yeah, that's accurate. But I... I also feel bad for the people who have lost their homes because to them, it's that left side of the meme. You know, if, if it's crazy to think about that hot lava literally came and swallowed your home and, and it's gone. Everything in there was gone and your family's now in a shelter. So I, I'm not, I have mixed feelings about the meme because I feel it kind of undermines some of the victim's feelings. And an, another thing about it is there are other aspects of a volcanic eruption that go beyond hot lava. And I'm speaking specifically about SO2 and hydrogen sulfide. Those are potentially lethal gases. I mean, they can kill people. That produces a cloud of VOG that is constantly being pumped into the air. And if you're downwind from it, it can affect your health, your eyes, your breathing. Sometimes I've, I've felt it on Maui even, you know, an island, you know, 70, 80 miles away. And so I also feel it kind of discounts that a little bit. We were speaking with a gentleman a couple of days ago. This is insane. Is that there is a way to harness some of these gases to produce energy. In PGV, one of the plants that's slowly being overrun by lava now, it seems like they've, they've pretty much sealed it up and it, everything that we're hearing is it's safe. But there was a gentleman we spoke to a couple of days ago who said there was an accidental release of some gases a couple years ago. And he at the time lived close to the plant and he had a small farm. And so this accidental release killed all of his farm animals from breathing. In the news a couple, about one or two months ago, there was a, a photographer, a guide who was taking some photographers out. And uh, I guess there was a release of some gases and, and he just died right there on the spot. So the vapors are potentially lethal and the team has been issued masks. So I carry this mask with me wherever I go. It's in my backpack. It's assembled. It's ready to go. If there's a problem, I should be able to put it on. But, you know, I've never encountered these things. For the most part, we're able to stay away from the dangerous part of the island. And I think anybody that comes to the island would be able to do the same. I mean, it's, it's obvious and clear where this is. Uh, the roads have been shut down. They're not letting people in for access you know, so things of that nature. But it's a very interesting disaster response. And I'm going to give you guys some, some observations that I think are pretty enlightening. One of the problems is, is the unknowns. There are so many unknowns. We don't know if this is going to turn off tomorrow. We don't know if it's going to go on for weeks, months, or even years. We don't know 
if the magnitude is going to change, it could increase or decrease with, without any warning, really. And uh, it makes me feel very small as a human. It's like Mother Nature is just saying, you know, we're going to, Mother Nature is saying, we're, I'm going to do my thing right now. And, and you guys just need to kind of get out of the way. And, and as humans, we're like, okay, it, you know, you can't really stop a volcanic eruption. And if you go on and you look at the history of volcanic eruptions, there have been attempts uh, by man to try to stop it. And for the most part, you can't really stop it. They've tried bombs and water. They've tried all kinds of things. But for the most part, if, if lava wants to go somewhere, it's pretty much going to go there because of the volume, uh, the temperature, talking about 2000 degrees Celsius, uh, you know, in the amount of it, and for the how long and it's just pumping out, we, we've learned that it's just typically best to get out of the way of it, which is fascinating to me because of the technology we have today. We're still very much at the mercy of Mother Nature. What we do basically in order to feed is we, we coordinate with local vendors and restaurants whose business are suffering. We pick the food up, we deliver it, and then we have some a little bit of downtime occasionally and we spend time coordinating and think of that, things of that nature. Uh, not as intense in terms of the stress, I can say that right now, in terms of the numbers of people that we're feeding. It's about, it, it fluctuates a little bit, but it's about 300 people per meal. And that goes up and down. Breakfast, we don't see nearly that same number because people are going to work. We have to be sensitive about taking pictures in the shelters, which is why you're not seeing a lot of pictures for me. Uh, it's essentially their new living room and having, you know, strangers showing up and taking pictures. They, we want to give them some dign, dignity and some privacy. And, uh, you know, that's why you're not seeing as many visuals. Something I have noticed for sure is there is a tremendous sense of Ohana. It's a Hawaiian word for family in the community coming together. It's, it's absolutely incredible that everybody wants to lend a hand. Everybody wants to help their neighbor. It's a really beautiful thing, and, and we even hear it in the meetings, these EOC meetings that I attend every morning. It doesn't feel so much governmental. It feels more like a community that's coming together, and it's an awesome thing to see. There is a local group that came together, and they're just receiving donations, and they've set up some tents over by the side of the road, and we swung by yesterday, and we saw it. And... Uh, that was a very interesting indicator to me because they had trailer loads full of resources available for the public. Beautiful, right? All these, all these resources coming together. People can swing by and pick up what they need. But in terms of logistics, and by the way, I'm acting as logistics chief on this deployment. The local contact here is doing a great job with the operations. I'm, I feel like I'm more consulting. However, the, the thing that I'm noticing, and this is another thing that makes it super unique, is it feels like the resources are there. You know, if you look at Puerto Rico, Haiti, Japan, the Philippines, Nepal, all these bigger disasters I've gone to, overwhelmingly, it felt like we could throw everything we had at it and wouldn't scratch the surface. What I'm seeing here is that we're able to feed the people that we've been assigned to. And we've gone out a little bit. We're poking around to try to figure out if other people are staying with friends or setting up tents and things of that nature. Well, that's another thing I got to tell you about. Uh, we have heard some rumors that people are staying with friends. 
And for the number of people who have officially evacuated, we're only seeing a small percentage of, of them showing up in the shelters. And so it makes sense. If you had the resources, you're not going to go into a shelter. You're going to go to a friend's house or maybe a family member. You might go to a different part of the island. And you, you might fly off the island, you know, if you had those resources. So the, the people we're seeing in the centers and in the shelters are more likely the people that don't have the resources or connections to do that. And so that number is about 15%. From what has been evacuated to who shows up in the shelters, it's about 15% or, or so. And that allows us to, to project if this neighborhood was to evacuate, how many, how many mouths would we have to plan for to feed? So it's kind of an interesting thing. And some of the numbers given to us by FEMA are just, you know, hypothetically planned for, you know, what would you do for 4,000 evacuees? What would you do for 20,000 evacuees? And the higher number you know, off the record with you guys, I have a hard time with these 20,000 numbers because there's, there's only 220,000 people on the, on the island in the first place. And, you know, if you had 20,000 evacuees, you know, following that 15% metric, that would mean the whole island was in trouble. And if the whole island was in trouble, I don't think we'd be looking at a feeding program. I think we'd be looking at a military evacuation. And so, I've seen this before in, in other disasters is these hypotheticals. And I remember this discussion I was having with a, a certain employee of a certain agency. I won't say who it was, but she was throwing like five or six hypotheticals at me and, and wanted a concrete answer. And, and I just told her, you I mean, you can't answer, you can't give a concrete answer to a question that has five hypotheticals. And so what I'm trying to say is, is we know that if things got really, really bad here, it would most likely be an evacuation. Kona side of the island on the far west is pretty much fine. You know, they're, they have plenty of resources over there. And if things got bad here, you know, people would go over there. So there's, there's a lot of unknowns in play, but we can also kind of project, you know, what our actions would be. And, and I think we're able to scale up pretty quick if we needed a few thousand. I don't think that would be a problem. Coming back to this idea of resources and demands. If you look at a you know supply and demand curve, anytime you have large amounts of resources available, and I'm speaking specifically about this roadside distribution where we had multiple trailers and there was a, a, an incredible uh, gourmet chef cooking there, had incredible food. There were plenty of resources there. And that tells me high supply, lower demand. And what I mean by that is there's more resources here than there are targets that need it. Okay. And, and the idea is that so many people want to help and donate and give, and it's amazing and incredible, but there's, I feel like we're starting to run out of targets when, once we leave the shelter and start looking around, it feels like people are being supported, which is a really good thing. Uh, you know, there were some evacuations last night and the day before. So we see some slight increases in the shelters but for now, right now, we are primarily focused on the kitchens and making sure that the needs are met there and dealing with the fluctuations. So one of the comments I wanted to share with you guys is there seems to be a transition for me personally when I leave a disaster and go home. It usually takes place over a day or two. There's a psychological transition and my close friends, I'll, I'll tell them about it. I feel, you know, I, hey, I feel like these little thoughts are creeping into my mind. And when I came home from Puerto Rico, I was very 
mindful of this transition happening. And it didn't feel like there was much I could do to stop it because why? I had to get back to work and start thinking about making a living, right? And for whatever reason, my mental state is not nearly as fulfilling in normal life. It feels like normal life is mostly filled with minutia and things that don't matter. And I that bugs me. And I want to figure out how to maintain the mentality that I have in disasters in regular life. And I've, I've kind of observed and studied this. and I'm not sure it's possible because in normal life, you got to make you got to make a living. And so we become consumed with supporting our families or ourselves in making a paycheck. Right. So something that was very interesting that happened when I got the call this time was I wanted to see if there was a transition going into a disaster. And there are some things that I noted. So I got the call on Sunday and I came over on Tuesday. In between those two days, something that I noticed was I started discounting little ideas and little minutia things in my life, my job. I, I just took everything and said, I'm not going to worry about work right now. I'm going to just deal with it when I come back. I, I shifted my attention to the task at hand, which was preparing my bags and getting ready and trying to gather information. And I, and another thing that happens in disasters is there's a discounting of ego is that your ego is always secondary to helping others. I don't know if those are the three keys to this mindset of being in a disaster, but I think it has a lot to do with it. It's what we devote our attention to and what we give priorities to and where our ego fits on that scale. If your ego is getting most of your attention or most of your priorities, I'm starting to come to the conclusion you're going to be unhappy. If your ego comes secondary to helping people in need, and you put these minutiae and little details secondary, don't give them so much emphasis, I think you're going to be happier. And that's what I'm feeling. That's the observation that I have, at least on this deployment. I feel like my time a minute on a disaster aid deployment is worth more than a minute of my time back home on Maui, different island. Uh, something that I saw in Puerto Rico was the things that I was so concerned about in my regular life aren't even on my radar. I'm not even thinking about them. You know, in Puerto Rico, it was, it was college football. I was so excited for college football. And as soon as I got to the disaster zone, I, I didn't give it a second thought. And that mentality is very different. I wish there was a formula to figure out how to get into this mindset of service and to keep it locked in while I am in regular life. That is something that I'm striving and aiming for because I'm far more receptive to learning and growing. Uh, my observations seem to be far sharper about, you know, just random things I'm learning. I, I take notes in a journal and, and this is what I'm learning. This is how I'm growing. And, and I want that mentality all the time. And uh, if I figure it out, I'll definitely share it with you guys. Definitely happier for sure. But those are some observations and some of the things that are going on here. It was interesting. We had a, a little bit of chaos the other day. The two rules in terms of a disaster aid response team, the two major rules that we try to stick by, number one, stay in your lane. And number two, follow the chain of command. 
if you don't follow those rules, things get so crazy and people trying to do other people's jobs. And, and so we had a little bit of chaos and chaos to me is an indicator that there's, there's a lack of leadership. And so I just pulled the team aside and, and, and kind of laid it down on them. And I think it rattled some of them, but we, we, you know, there has to be some structure in terms of what we're doing. And, uh, I think we got it squared away and we have a great team here. I'm, I'm so happy and excited to be working with them. And uh, at one point we were talking about bringing volunteers in. So if you have the ability to come to the big Island and volunteer, think about it. Um, this is not a formal invitation, but think about it. You know, if Michael came onto the podcast and said, Hey, I need volunteers to show up. Would you be able to do it? Would you be able to pay for your own plane ticket? Come over here, potentially live in either an Airbnb or a stranger's house to have the opportunity to serve evacuees for, I don't know, a week or two or longer. Would you do it? Could you do it? How would you do it? Start thinking about that and ask yourself, how is this changing my thoughts? Typically what happens is um, when I talk to friends about volunteering, they, okay, to put this bluntly, they think about all the reasons why they cannot. They have work or they have commitments, or they have pets to feed, or whatever it is, which are are all legitimate. And it would require you to say all of those things are secondary, and I'm going to make this a priority to come and serve. Now, the reason why I want you to do this exercise is maybe we will need help. You know, maybe that lava fountain will really open up, and there'll be, a, uh, you know, a few thousand people in the shelter. And it, if that happens, I've been given the green light to invite people in, you know, the right people. And I would invite some of you in if it was a serious thing on your radar. But in order for you to do that, you would have to make it your number one priority and set all things aside. That is going to change your mindset. And even if it doesn't happen here, it could happen at a future disaster. Uh, there are going to be much larger bigger disasters. And I, I hope I'm blessed with the opportunity to serve in them. They're, they're my most important, valuable life experience above anything that I can think I can do. I want to be in disasters serving people. It's going to happen in the future, in different places, in different locations. And so I want to give you that challenge is to consider yourself capable of giving aid to people who need it. And if I were to call out for your help, would you come? Could you come? Could you be a team player? Could you set your ego aside for the sake of the mission and helping somebody else need it? We're talking about on the ground operations. You know, you may not like how things are going and I may ask you to set it aside. Are you capable of doing that? Um, you, you know, every disaster that I've gone to, somebody, including myself, has expressed the fact that it's not going the way they want. They want to get on a plane and go home. And my answer to them is you can get on a plane and go anytime you want. Literally, you can quit anytime. If you want to go ring that bell, you're welcome to do it. But this disaster is only going to happen here at this time, at this place. It's a once in a lifetime opportunity. And you would have to live with that decision for the rest of your life. This is what, this is my mentality about quitting when things get tough here. I'm not going to quit. You, you know, I would like, I think I would rather get seriously sick or injured before I quit, you know, or, or worse. I don't know. But um, I think it's natural to have that thought when things are tough. But this is temporary for us. This is temporary because we're going we're gonna to go home. We can hop on a plane and go home and all our stuff will be there and our friends or family, you know, that's not the case for the victims here. So 
I know that's kind of a long rambling podcast, but those are some of the thoughts that I wanted to share with you guys in, in terms of, you know, where I'm at and some of the things that I've learned. And I, I'm so thankful for the support that I've had on the podcast. I know I'm a little inconsistent, but the podcast is secondary to serving in disaster zones. Photography is secondary. You know, my income is secondary. All those things are secondary. And if you have the opportunity to do that experiment, definitely try it out. It's a real eye opener, but I appreciate you guys so much. Uh, If I can post again within the next week or so, I will, and I'll share with you what I'm learning. So thank you guys so much for listening and I'll see you next time.